John 15. You know, if you're a genuine believer, I want you to know that the Lord has a purpose for your life. He's got a purpose for your life. It's not a mysterious purpose that only the spiritually savvy among us can figure out, you know, as we mine the depths of the scripture and try to figure out this mystery. It's not a mysterious purpose at all. It is not an undefined purpose that's vague and kind of foggy and we're kind of lost in it. We don't know what's going on. That's not what this is. The purpose that we have is very clear and it's spelled out for us in no uncertain terms and it's this. The purpose for God's people is that they bear fruit, that they bear spiritual fruit. Or to state it more, state it more completely as I did last week, again, the Lord's purpose for us is that we bear fruit as the Father prunes us and as we abide in Christ in order that we might glorify God. That's our purpose. Now, we started this last week, so let me review briefly. Uh, we talked about the Lord's illustration of fruit bearing last week. In this, in this illustration, the vine is, 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 is Jesus, uh, John 15, 1, I am the true vine, Jesus says. And he is the vine, the true vine, in contrast to Israel, who's not the false vine. They were God's true vine in the Old Testament. But they were a vine that failed miserably in their mission to bear fruit. God says, I'll look for Isaiah 5 to bear fruit. And uh, you guys, it was all worthless fruit. It was all wild grapes, nothing that was edible at all. But Jesus will not fail. That's the contrast. Israel failed. Jesus will not fail in his mission. There's also, we talked about spiritual fruit. What is it? Well, you have the fruit of attitude, such as Galatians 5, uh, 22, 23. Uh, In other words, we're talking about love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and kindness and self-control and all these kind of things. That is the fruit of attitude that we can bear. There's also the fruit of uh, thankfulness and praise, Hebrews chapter 13. We give the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to God. It's also the fruit of souls, John chapter 4, that these are people who were saved by the Lord because God's people faithfully proclaimed the gospel to them. And so spiritual fruit is being born on all these different levels, and anything that pleases God basically boils down to spiritual fruit. Um, we, we also looked at the branches last week. Two kinds of branches in John 15, those that don't bear fruit and those that do bear fruit. The fruitless branches are professing believers only, they're Christians in name only. They're not real. They're not genuine. But the fruitful branches are the ones whom the Lord truly has saved by his grace, and thus they bear fruit. So that's the Lord's illustration of fruit bearing. Secondly, today, we want to look at this, the Lord's instructions on fruit bearing. His instructions on fruit bearing. And there are two ways that the scripture says, John 15 says that we bear fruit. One is through the pruning of the vine dresser. Pruning of the vine dresser. Two, the other is by abiding in the vine. First of all, let's look at the fact that we bear fruit through the pruning of the vine dresser. Now, who, now who is the vine dresser? Well, John 15 once says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So that fact is established. There's no doubt about it at all. The word vine dresser actually means farmer. It's one who tends the vine, one who cares for the vineyard. Uh, we saw that in Isaiah 5. The vineyard keeper, the, uh, the vine dresser, he was one who... Uh, he, dug up the, he dug around the vineyard, and he dug up the stones out of the vineyard, and he planted the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and he made a, a wine vat. You know, given the extreme care that he gave to this vineyard, in, in, uh, which was Israel in the Old Testament, you would expect that to bear, it's not unrealistic to expect uh, fruit to be born by Israel. He expected quality grapes. After all, he put a quality effort into it, right? But he didn't get that at all. 
So God the Father is the one who cultivates the vineyard. Uh, he does everything he can to ensure a, a good crop of fruit. He's going to do everything he can. Now, I don't think that we think about this very much. But think about this for a minute. Our Heavenly Father is always at work in our lives. He is at work in the life of every believer. Do you realize that? Do you ever think about that? That's what these verses are saying. Uh, the Father doesn't leave us to our own resources. It says in John 14 that he will not leave us as orphans, Christ said. We have a Heavenly Father who looks after us. Our Father is engaged, actively engaged, I might add, in the life of every true believer. You know, we think an earthly father is, it should be. An earthly father should be engaged in the life of his children. Uh, he should love them. He should spend time with them. He should warn them. He should correct them. He should guide them. He should oversee their growth and development. All these things are true. Uh, and in the same way, the, how much more the Heavenly Father watches over his children, true believers, born-again believers in Christ. How much more should it be? Is it true that he watches over us, that he works in our lives, that he is overseeing our growth and development? He is not an absentee father. And we have so many absentee fathers in our society, that's the only thing we can think about anymore. God is not an absentee father. He's always there watching over us, working in our lives in many ways. But there is a one way in particular spoken of here in which he works. And that is this, the vine dresser prunes every fruit-bearing branch. He prunes every fruit-bearing branch. Now, periodically, we're talking about a grapevine here. The shoots of a grapevine, grapevine are trimmed back so they don't grow too rapidly. Maybe the wind can snap them off, and so they're cut back. Also, they're cut because, so you can produce more and better fruit. And so the pruning process is necessary, and the vine dresser prunes the branches for what? For maximum yield, right? Maximum yield. Left to itself, a vine is going to produce a lot of growth, but it's going to be unproductive growth. It's not going to go anywhere. Now, remember, in this illustration of the vine and the branches, every fruit-bearing branch is a true believer, and since that is true, every single true believer will bear some degree of fruit. And that's how it is. And every believer will be pruned by the Father, the Heavenly Father. And I'll tell you something. The Heavenly Father is not content. He's not content with a little fruit here and a little fruit there. He's not content with that. He's going for maximum production. You need to understand that as we come through this chapter. He's going for maximum production, not a little bit. That's what he says again and again. He doesn't say here, Every branch in me that bears fruit, I'm satisfied with. That's good. You guys are good. Uh, looks like everything's okay over here. He doesn't say that. Somebody said, by the way, he's not, sa he's not satisfied. God is not satisfied simply because we are justified. Justification is in the end of all things. We go on from there and we serve the Lord. I think many of us are satisfied just to be justified, though. I think a lot of believers are satisfied. They're saved. They're on their way to heaven. But their attitude is, don't expect me to serve the Lord a whole lot. Don't expect me to get too involved in the work of the ministry. As long as my needs are taken care of, I'm good. Don't expect me to do a whole, put out a whole lot for when it comes to the things of God. I've noticed, by the way, when it comes to the things of God, the things of Christ, the body of Christ, the church, I notice that our, that our attitude is, as long as we put in minimal effort, minimal effort, then we're good. We're good to go. That's good enough. And as long as we show minimal involvement, the Lord should be happy with that, right? Uh, certainly he doesn't want any more out of my life anyway. Isn't that legalism? That the Lord would be going for maximal effort? 
Are you accusing the Lord of legalism? I hear this excuse constantly. Every time somebody says we need to serve the Lord, do something, someone says that's legalism. In many different areas, how is that legalism? It's not that way at all. God wants maximal effort. Now, we might be satisfied with minimal effort. We might be satisfied with minimal production, but the Lord is not. As you read this chapter, he's not. The Father is not content that we merely bear fruit. He's not content with that. You think that'd be good enough, right? It's not good enough. He says here he wants more fruit. Verse 2, at the end of it, he prunes it so that it may bear what? More fruit. Maximum uh, effort is what, is what he's looking for, maximum production. And you know what that demands? That demands maximum submission to the Lord. And we don't like to think about that, right? Because we're cozy in what we're doing. We don't want uh, to come out of our comfort zone. We don't want to do any more. We're good right now, right? But the Lord wants maximum submission. Please understand what I'm saying. I'm talking about what the Father wants out of his people, not what the pastors of this church want out of, their, out of the people. This is what the Lord is saying right here. Now, the Christian life is not a business enterprise. It's not a, a goal setting. I used to work for a corporation for years, and every year they would make a lot of goals for us to reach, and uh, every year we wouldn't reach the goals. And every year they would make more goals the next year, unrealistic, and I think, you guys didn't meet your goals last year. You're going to do it again this year, make more goals. The, we don't operate that way in the Christian life. The Lord doesn't operate with a corporate mentality. It's not what I'm saying here. But again, verse 2 says this, Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Look at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this that you bear what? Much fruit. And you know, as a believer bears fruit, you know what happens? He, the Father prunes the branches so that we may bear more fruit. By the way, is this microphone interfering with what's happening here? Mike, okay. I think it's time to lay aside our lame excuses that we're constantly making about why we don't serve the Lord and why we don't do what God wants us to do, what he's given us to do. Time to put that aside and think the way the Father does. See, we want less commitment to Christ. The Father wants more commitment to Christ. And so, let's, and he, in effect, God is saying, let's take it to the next level. I'm going to prune you. So guess what? There's not going to be less fruit out of your life. There's going to be more fruit out of your life. Now, you garden people out there, you horticulturalist among us, I'm not a horticulturalist. I just pretend to be one in the pulpit, and I'm not really one. But you know that in order for a tree to bear fruit, you've got to trim it back, right? You know this to be true. I know some of you people out there are doing this. In a grapevine, if you don't prune the shoots back, you're not going to get, reach the maximum potential and growth. And so the Father sets about the task in the same manner of pruning his people. Now, the word prunes in verse 2 has the basic meaning of cleaning or cleansing, and he does this, here in this context, he does this cleaning or cleansing through the idea of pruning. He prunes or he cleanses anything in the life of the believer that serves his purpose. This is God's call on this. He's going to prune anything in your life that serves his purpose. He is going to, he can do that because he's a vine, branch or a vine dresser. We're only the branches. We don't, we don't call the shots on this. God does. He wants all things that hinder our lives spiritually to be removed. He wants it to be taken out of the way. And so he can do this, and his plan is to further his own cause and to further the cause of the gospel. Now, many people think that this pruning process has to do with the Lord uh, bringing us through some kind of uh, affliction or trial or disciplinary action or something like that. And that, no doubt, is the case in many, in many times. It's the case, and no doubt he desires this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. 
have a few passages I'm going to read that are kind of lengthy, but you need to see these. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. It says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline is for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so this chapter is teaching us God deals with us as with sons when he disciplines us. He disciplines us for our good. He makes it difficult on, on us for our good. He brings us through trials for our good. That's why he does it. Um, he, he does it, as Hebrews 12 says, so we may share in his holiness. Uh, the end result of this painful process is that it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so, yeah, fruit bearing is part of the disciplinary process. So I can see that trials, I can see in the scripture that disciplinary actions can be used of God for the purpose of fruit bearing. But in John 15, what is the primary means of, of pruning? What type of pruning knife is mentioned in John 15? Look at verse 3, John 15, 3. 15.2 says he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Verse 3, you are already clean because of what? The word which I have spoken in you. You are clean because of the word which I have spoken in you. The pruning knife is the word of God. That is the primary instrument which God promises or prunes us. And here, in particular, is the word of Christ. It's basically all the teachings of Christ that Christ taught his disciples when he was with them. And the primary instrument God uses in pruning and in the cleaning process in our life, the cleansing process in our life is the word of God. Uh, but I want you to see something here. It's not easily picked up in the English translation. Look at verse 2. It, talks about, it says the word prunes there. Verse 3 says, you're already clean. Uh, that, the word prunes in verse 2, the word clean in verse 3 is from the same, root, uh, same Greek root word. Basically, it's the same word both times. And they both have the meaning of clean or cleanse. Now, the verse, in, in verse 2, the, the, the word can mean also could apply to pruning. Because what are you doing in pruning? You're cleaning, right? You're cleansing the, the, the limb or the vine. And so it can, be, it can deal with that. But in verse 2, the Father is cleansing his people from anything that hinders us from, very, from bearing fruit. But in verse 3, it says he's already cleansed us. He's cleansing us, but he's already cleansed us. You see the conundrum here? Well, I tell you, when you study John 15, you come through all these things. <laughs> you come across all these things. So how can both of these things be true? That he's cleaning us in the present... And yet he's cleansed us in the past. How is this possible? Well, look at John chapter 13. Another lengthy passage, John 13, verse 1. He says here, or it says here, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil 
having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things in his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand it hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you, plural, you, plural, speaking to the eleven, are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. You know, back at that time, a person would be invited to a banquet. And before he went to the banquet or some special occasion, he would, wash, he would take a bath at home. He'd wash. And then he would walk to the place where the banquet was, was held. And on the way, his feet would get dusty and dirty. And so the custom was when he got to the, the banquet, the host would wash the, the people's feet, wash their dust and dirt off the feet. And that's what's happening here. And Jesus takes this custom and he makes a spiritual application here. He says, basically, to all 11 disciples, plural, he says, you guys are already clean. Uh, you're already clean, so all you have to do is have your feet clean. In other words, the spiritual application is this. Since your, your salvation is already secure, all you need is daily cleansing of sin. By asking God, by confessing your sin and forgiving, and asking God to forgive you of your sin, because you're already saved. D.A. Carson, to back me up, says this. He says the initial and fundamental cleansing that Christ provided is a once-for-all act. Individuals who have been cleansed by Christ's atoning work will doubtless need to have subsequent sins washed away, your daily sins. But the fundamental cleansing can never be repeated. And so you have the, the salvation that takes place. You're already clean. You're saved. But then there's this daily cleansing that takes place. You come to Christ and ask him to, to forgive you of your daily sins. Now the contrast here is between the 11 other disciples and Judas. Between those guys. Judas was not spiritually clean. They were. He was not saved. They were. He didn't embrace the gospel. They had. And Christ had taught them the truth of the gospel many times. And you see that in the gospel of John. So we go back to John 15. And he says in verse 3, you are already clean. You're, in other words, you're already true, true branches. And since that is the case, you will have to go through the pruning process, which is through the word of God. So you can bear more fruit. And so those who have been cleansed from sin... They get pruned, but those who have not, they go to judgment, verse 6, as we said last week. Now, how were the eleven originally cleansed? You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken unto you. As I said, Jesus taught the gospel many times in, in the book of John. Do you remember last week when we brought up John chapter 6? And Jesus said some things that were very difficult to understand and to hear. And, and, some, and many, it says many of his disciples said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this? We don't even get what you're saying. And then they quit following him permanently, it says. They permanently quit following him is what it means. And Jesus said to his 11 disciples, will you also go away? And Peter and John, at the end of John chapter 6, makes the great statement. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Listen to this. And we, disciples, have believed. We've believed and we have come to know 
over the course of time. We've come to know, because they saw Christ and saw what he did and how he talked and how he acted and how he lived, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We believe, Lord. The disciples had to be regenerated like everybody else. And over time, they had heard Christ, and I don't know when this happened, how it happened, where it happened, but these disciples had become saved, and God had used his word to bring them to that place. So the word of God is a cleansing instrument that, that cleanses us from sin, that brings us to the place of salvation. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, in the past, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word. I read a, a note on this by somebody. He said, well, it's probably talking about baptism. The only problem is it says washing of water with the word. It's there in the context, Mr. Bible Scholar. The word is instrumental in our initial cleansing. It's, our, it's instrumental. Our, we're initially cleansed by Christ as we're saved by Christ. And then it comes and it's always, it acts throughout our life as we're pruned by God. The word prunes us. Spurgeon said this about this chapter. It is the word that prunes the Christian. It is the truth that purges him. The scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit effectively cleanses the Christian. I agree with that. That's what it says, right, in the, in the passage in John 15. Jesus would later say in John 17, 17, he would say to his disciples, he would pray to the Father for his disciples, and he'd say, sanctify them, my disciples, through your truth, for your word is truth. And so the means of sanctification is through the word of God. Psalm 119, 9, how can a young man keep his way clean? How can he keep it pure? Either way you can translate it. How can a young man keep his way pure or clean? By keeping it according to your what? Your word. Your word. The word prunes us as we, as we go into it and see what it says and we're convicted by it. It's kind of like Hebrews 4.12 which says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. How descriptive is this? And is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Wow, can't get a better description than that. The word of God just cuts deep, doesn't it? Cuts deep. It's cutting, it's piercing, it cuts us to the depth of our souls as we hear it preached, as we read it, we're convicted by our sin. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for what? For four things. Profitable for teaching. Profitable for reproof. It reproves us. It's profitable for correction. It corrects our behavior, and it trains us in righteousness. Those four things. So when we read the word, when we hear it preached, when we look at it, it is correcting our behavior. It's, it's pruning us, in effect. We're looking at it and we're saying, wow, I'm messing up big time here. I better get myself together. And you ask God to help you with that. That is how the word of God prunes us or cleanses us. You know, it's not easy to hear the truth of the scriptures, is it? As you sit there and we're, we're, lot, we're caught up in some habit of sin, it's not easy to hear the, the truth, is it? It, it's cut, it, cuts, it cuts deep. It exposes what's truly in our hearts. It shows us who we really are. It's not a pleasant, you know, you go in front of the mirror of the word and you look at it and you don't want to be like the guy in James 1 who looked at it and walked away. You want to be the person that looks at it and gets convicted and says, wow, I need to change my whole, my whole act here. This is all crazy, the way I'm living. It's, it's painful. It can hurt. It's not pleasant, but it's necessary. The pruning of the word of God is necessary for us to grow in order that what? We might bear fruit. God transforms our lives and we're able to bear fruit. So the pruning knife of the Father is the word of God. And we need, it to, allow, we need to, to allow it to take hold of our hearts and to convict us of sin and things that are in our life we need to get rid of. 
Now, there's a second way by which we bear fruit, not only by the pruning of the Father, but secondly, we bear fruit by abiding in the vine. We abide in the vine, verses 4 to 7. Christ says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch, and he dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. Now I want to ask two questions of the text regarding the business, this business of abiding. First of all, who is abiding in the vine, number one? And number two, what does it mean to abide in the vine? First of all, who is abiding in the vine? If, is it only, let me ask you this, is it only the most, as you read this passage, you might be tempted to think it's only the most spiritual among us that are really abiding the vine. The rest of us are kind of just out there somewhere. Is it only those who have attained a certain level of spirituality that are abiding the vine? That the rest of us common folk may consider unreachable. We can't even scale the heights of that kind of spirituality. Is it only the spiritual elite among us that are abiding the vine? No. Since all true believers, I said, listen to this now, since all true believers bear some degree of spiritual fruit or another, then it follows that all true believers are abiding in Christ to some degree or another. That's how it is. If they were not abiding in Christ, they could bear no spiritual fruit. And the people who are the branches, in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, those are professing believers only. They say they're Christians. They're Christians in name only. They come to church... They have a Bible, and they pray, and things of this nature, but they're only fooling uh, other people. But God knows their heart. They're not real. They're like Judas, who was one of the twelve, and yet he wasn't real. And these people will face judgment, according to verse 6. But the true, all true believers are abiding in the vine. All true believers abide in the vine to some degree or another, whether they are mature saints that have been walking with God for 50 years, or whether they're newborn believers. All true believers will abide in the vine. It's not like some believers are abiding in the vine and some are not. That's not how it is. All true believers are abiding in the vine, and they, all true believers draw, draw their life from Christ. That's how it is. The branches claiming to be in the vine but not bearing fruit, they're not abiding in the vine. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's removed. He's thrown away as a branch. He dries up. They gather them. They cast them in the fire. They're burned. These people are not abiding in Christ. That's why they're not bearing fruit to any degree at all. And so they're judged. But every genuine believer abides in the vine. That's something you need to understand. Everybody in this room that's a genuine believer abides in Christ to some degree or another. Now, secondly, what does it mean to abide? Now, this has thrown up a lot of discussion over the years. What does it mean to abide? Well, the word abide is mentioned 11 times in this section. You see how key it is, how the great emphasis is placed on it? 11 times it's mentioned. Look at verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 7, verse 6, rather. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch. Verse 7. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. Verse 9, 
Just as the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And look at verse 16. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. It says remain in the NASB. But the, it's the same word, same Greek word every time, 11 times, that your fruit would remain. So wherever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And so all these references to abide, is very important that we understand what it means. What is involved in the idea of abiding? Well, I've listed five elements that are involved. First of all, perseverance. What does it mean to abide? It means to persevere. The literal meaning of the word abide is this, to stay or to continue or to remain, even reside. So it's people that are staying involved in something, continuing in something, remaining in something, residing somewhere. Now we know that when the Lord saves us, he saves us eternally. It's not a temporal thing. That person will not lose his salvation because he's protected by the power of God. 1 Peter 1.5, we call that what? The doctrine of eternal security. But from a human standpoint, we have a different name for the same doctrine. We call it the perseverance of the saints. And what that means is a lot of people misunderstand that. A true saint will persevere until the end. He will not finally fall away. He will not apostatize. That's what the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is. He will persevere to the end because he's a true believer. True believers persevere to the end. They don't fall away from the faith. Of course, we can only persevere because God, by his grace, enables us to persevere to the end. It's not self-effort. But nonetheless, true believers persevere all the way to the end. So literally speaking, to abide in Christ means to remain in him or stay in him or continue in him. So a true believer may stumble and fall in life. You may sin and do something wrong, but you will get up. You will ask God to forgive you. You will confess your sin. You will repent of your sin. You'll come back to God, and you'll live for him again. You won't fall away from the faith. And this goes for the entire course of your life. So the basic meaning of abide, the fundamental meaning of abide is to, to stay with it, to persevere by continuing on with Christ. Second element involved in abiding is relationship. Relationship. Abiding is not only just about persevering in the faith, though that's fundamental, but it's much more than that. It's much richer than that. It's much greater than that. It means we have a relationship with Christ. We are related to Christ, and the relationship we have with him is an intimate one. Intimate one. He loves us. Christ loves us. We love him. We want to do for him. We want to serve him. We want to love him. And we're to cultivate this relationship. It's an intimate one. He's adopted us into his family, his sons. We're part of the family of God, and so we abide in him. Now, abiding in Christ is not just a cold, hard theological fact. If that's all it is, we don't understand the full meaning of it. It is, an, it is a relationship. We're talking about a deep, loving fellowship that we enjoy with the Lord, not an obligation. Nor are we on our autopilot. Sometimes I think when we read these words, abide, Oh, we're on autopilot. We're just abiding in Christ. No, we're not. It's not that simple. We're to cultivate this relationship with Christ. We're to value this relationship. We're to treasure this relationship because he's our Lord and we love him. That is truly abiding in Christ. The other day I was reading uh, something about the subject of reading the Bible, reading about reading, and the author asked this question. He says, your focus, is the focus of your Bible reading informational or is it relational? Is it informational or relational? Are we seeking to simply discover facts uh, about the Bible? 
Are we focused, as we read our scriptures, are we focused on our relationship with Christ? Which is it we're doing? Now, I thought that was a good question for me to consider. I'll tell you why. Because my natural inclination is to gather academic information. That's what I do. I gather academic information. That's, that's who I am. But, and so I've got to think to my, in terms of, hey, wait a minute. This isn't about just finding out facts about the scripture. This is a relationship with, with Christ I have going on here. It's not just an obligation to meet. It's just not, it's not a routine. It's not a quest for theological knowledge. This is a relationship. And so that's what I've got to focus on. Now, look at, if you would, look at Luke chapter 19. We've got a great picture here of, of what this means in picture form. Luke 19, verse 1, gives us a great, great insights on this relational aspect of abiding. Luke 19, 1. It says here, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see Jesus who he was, who, who Jesus was, and was unable because of the crowd, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. The word stay is the same word abide in, in Greek. Same word in John 15. I mentioned 11 times. It's just translated stay here as it can be. Today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, this chapter is interesting in itself. We could just probably leave John 15 and go here for a while, but we won't do that. But the word, as I said in verse 5, Jesus said to him that Jesus was on a mission to save Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is in a tree looking at him, trying to see who he is out of curiosity. And uh, he's a chief tax collector. He's a wicked man in that day, by the way. Wicked man. Everybody hated him. And, uh, and yet... Jesus comes after him, and in verse 5, Jesus looks up to the tree. Funny, he, he walks up, and the first thing he does is look up at the tree. He says, Zacchaeus, come on down. He says, I want to abide in your, at your house today. That's what I want to do. And so he wanted to abide with him. By the way, John 15, 4 says, abide in me and I in you. Have you noticed that? Abide in me and I in you. It's a reciprocal abiding. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I want to abide with you in your house today. It's reciprocal for the believer. Believers abide in Christ at the same time he's abiding in us. It's not just a one-way relationship, you see. It's a relationship, two ways. It's an intimate one. He's abiding in us. Notice the response of Zacchaeus. Verse 6, he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Now, that is a great verse right now. He hurried down the tree. The word hurried here means to do something as quickly as possible. He did not lose any time to get down to Jesus. That's how excited Zacchaeus was to see Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are you excited about the prospect of spending time with Jesus? Does that excite you? Or is it just another day in the, in the neighborhood? Not that big of a deal. It excited Zacchaeus. He was beside himself with excitement, as a matter of fact. He can't get down the tree quick enough. He hurries down there as fast as possible. And the end of verse 6 says, He received him gladly. Now, the, re the word receive means to welcome a person as a guest. 
he welcomed Jesus, glad, more than happy to welcome him into his house. And in that day, in Israel, when you were welcomed in as a guest in the house, this great hospitality was shown to, to a person. They might wash your feet. They would definitely cook you a meal, and it might involve killing a lamb or something to do that. They didn't, they'd cook a meal for you. You'd eat with them. They would be, show the utmost in hospitality, and this is what Zacchaeus did. No, that doesn't say all this, but that's what they did in the, in the customs of that day. And so the, the, even the, the Pharisees here accuse him of, of uh, going, to be, going to the house of a man who was a sinner. He's going there to be his guest, of all things. And he's going to show him all his hospitality. And that's what Zacchaeus did. And then it says Zacchaeus received him gladly. Another great word. It means to rejoice. Zacchaeus was beside himself with joy, overflowing with joy, because Jesus come, would, would come to his house. Uh, by the way, he didn't invite Jesus. Jesus didn't invite himself. But that's okay, right? If Jesus invited himself to your house, would you open the door or tell him to go be on his way? But Zacchaeus wanted him to come in. And so you have this great word, of, word picture of the concept of abiding. Jesus was treated like royalty. Zacchaeus bent over backwards to receive Jesus. And so this is a great picture of the relational aspect of the Christian with Christ. Uh, abiding in Christ means we not only remain in him, but we throw out the welcome mat to him. And we welcome him in and we rejoice to be with him and we eagerly, eagerly follow him as Zacchaeus would do. He says, Lord, my life's totally changed now because you've come in and you've saved me. And he says, I'm going to change my ways completely now because that's evidence of salvation. Abiding means we have a relationship with Christ and we cultivate that relationship. Thirdly, the third element involved in abiding, Responsibility. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. Now, why would I say we have a responsibility to abide in the vine? It seems kind of a downer, right, after the relational aspect? But if all, if all believers already abide in the vine, then how is it our responsibility to abide in the vine? Here's how. Verse 4 is a command of the, of the 11 times the word abide is used in John 15. The first time it's used is a command. When he says in verse 4, abide in me, that is a command right there. And since he's commanding this to happen, it's our responsibility to accept this upon ourselves. Now, for some reason, and I looked through different commentaries about this particular command because it's very interesting to me that he commanded this right here. Guess what? Most of them didn't say anything. I'm like, okay, guys, I know it's a command. Why aren't you talking about it? I don't think they wanted to talk about it personally. But one guy talked about it, and I think this is very good. He said the imagery of the vine is stretched a little. By the way, not, when you have an illustration in the Bible vine branches or whatever it might be, those are only illustrations to point out some facts. They're not all, they're, human illustrations always break down somewhere. But they're pointing out facts. But this man says the imagery of the vine is stretched a little when the branches are given the responsibility to remain in the vine. Branches typically in a tree aren't responsible, right? They're kind of just hanging out there with the tree, stuck in the tree. But in this case, they're given a responsibility to remain in the vine, but the point is clear. Reliance upon Christ, this is the indispensable action for spiritual fruitfulness. We're commanded to abide in the vine. Uh, Daniel Wallace, another, another well-known Greek scholar, said this. Listen to this. The stress on the word abide, the stress is on the solemnity and the urgency of the action. As if to say, I'm solemnly charging you to act and do it now. In other words, abide in the vine, do this thing. This is solemn. This is urgent. Make this your top priority. In other words... We're responsible to buy, abide in the vine. And we better realize how serious our responsibility is. It's a solemn matter. It's an urgent matter. This business of abiding in the vine. Not to be taken lightly. Now, so many times, 
we see this type of thinking in the New Testament. Um, for example, Romans 6, 6, we talk, about, we talk about being in the vine, and yet we have to, we're commanded to abide in the vine. How does that work? Romans 6, 6 says our old self was crucified with Christ, and we are now no longer slaves to sin. It's a fact. No longer slaves to sin, it says. But a few verses later in verse 11, it says this, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And so the believer is no longer a slave to sin, yet he's commanded not to be a slave to sin any longer. It's always like that in the New Testament because it's always pointing out our position in Christ as a fact, and then the follow-up is a practical way we're to live. It's always presented that way. So our position in Christ is a fact, but we are to practically live out that fact in our daily lives. We're in Christ, but we're commanded to abide in the vine at the same time. Abide in Christ. And we, cannot, we dare not neglect this responsibility. God has put us in Christ, but he says, abide in Christ, this is our top priority. Now, this is where people misunderstand. This passage has been misrepresented oftentimes. Throughout history, there have been, always been those who say, this is how we live the Christian life. We don't do anything at all. We do, this has been, you can, quietism in history was one of the, one of the movements. Uh, the mystics were into this. The Keswick movement in the 1800s in England, same thing happened. Again and again, you see it throughout history. We don't do anything. In other words, back years ago, there were some people that were going around saying, let go and let God. Does anybody remember that? Yeah. Oh, let go and let God. God's going to do it all for you. You just hang out and just, you don't need to do anything. Uh, that's not how it works in sanctification. If, we, if that's true, we, never re we should never read our Bible. We should never pray. No one should ever preach. We should never witness. We should never serve God at all. Let's just sit down in the lotus position and close our eyes and burn incense and possibly the spiritual aura will come over our, our lives and it will bear fruit somehow. That's not how it works. That reasoning runs counter to everything Paul said, for example. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. At the, end of the, at the end of the chapter, Paul said this, I run in this Christian race. That's an action he took. He said, I box, not with uncertainty. He says, I discipline my body. These are all actions that he's taking. Now, if you're a monk and you want to live in a monastery, that's your business, but that's not how the Christian life is to be lived. We take action. That, it's, it's, Christian life is a life of action and obedience and doing and working. Now, some people don't like what, what I'm saying right now, and there's this, there's this thing going around right now that says we don't have to obey God, that we really don't obey God at all. That's, that is not scriptural at all. It's the kind of thing J.C. Ryle wrote against, against the Keswick movement in his book, Holiness, as a matter of fact. We do things for the Lord. Of course we do things for the Lord. We do it in his power also. I understand this. What we do, we do in the power of his might. And so, and, and there's another command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, all your strength. Everything is within you. Love him. That's tremendous effort we exert. Tremendous effort we exert in, in that kind of thing. The command to abide makes us responsible. So there's responsibility. Let's look at the fourth element in abiding. Dependency. Dependency. Now, we're responsible to abide in Christ. We have a command to do that. At the same time, we are totally and completely dependent upon Christ. We're always dependent upon his strength. That is the nature of abiding. Those are not contradictory, by the way. We will bear no fruit. We will bear no spiritual fruit apart from abiding in the vine. And look at verse 5. That's the clincher. I love this verse. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For Here's my favorite part. For apart from me, you can do what? 
you can do nothing. Or it could be translated, without me, you can do nothing. We're not going to, the, the very illustration of the vine and branches teaches us this truth. The very illustration itself, the branches are in union with the vine. The branches draw their life from the vine, which nourishes them. In like manner, believers are in union with Christ. We draw from him. It's a vital union. We draw life from him. He flows through our, our life, and he, and he bears fruit. We, we, everything comes through. We, his life is surging through us. That's how the fruit is born. It's not self-effort. We're responsible to abide in the vine, but it's not self-effort. We're totally dependent upon him for any fruit that's born. We're in complete dependency upon Christ. The same truth is taught elsewhere. Galatians 2.20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, he says. See how that works? Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, Colossians 1.29. Love this verse. Paul said, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works it within me. Paul labors. Paul strives. Paul works. But he does so in accordance with God's power. He's not resting on his laurels. He's busy. He's active. He's engaged, actively engaged in the ministry, but he's totally dependent upon Christ at the same time. I love First Philippians 4.13 as well. Paul states, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things, but I'm doing it through him who strengthens me. Now, who's doing the doing here? Paul is, right? Paul is the one doing it, but he's doing it through the strength of Christ. And so abiding means we're completely dependent upon Christ to do his work through us and bear fruit. Never, by the way, never, ever attempt to do the work of God in your own strength. Please never do that. Don't come up with an idea, I think I'm going to do such and such because you want the limelight or whatever your reason is. Please don't ever do that. Only do things in God's, never attempt to launch out into the ministry unless you're, unless you're depending upon him only. Because to do so is utter folly, to do, to do that is utter folly. Fruit only comes from, when we, from in our life when we depend upon Christ. And so you have these elements. Number five, the fifth element, Scripture. Scripture. There are two things necessary here regarding Scripture. This is part of abiding in the vine. Number one, we must abide in his word. Number two, we must obey his word. First of all, we abide in his word. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you want. It's going to be done for you, he says. Here's a tangible key to abide in Christ. The words of Christ must abide in us. The word of God must re remain in us. For that to happen, we must continue in his word, right? We must stay in his word. It must take up residence in our lives. It must live in our hearts. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it be at home in your heart. Psalms chapter 1 says that our delight must be in the law of the Lord. In that law, we must meditate day and night. That's the key right there in meditation. And if we do this, we're going to be like a tree, a strong tree planted by the streams of water. And guess what's going to happen in time when we do this? It says this, the tree will yield its fruit in its season. It's going to happen. By the way, it takes time to bear fruit. It takes time for us to grow in Christ. We don't, it doesn't happen overnight. When it starts happening, we start bearing more and more fruit. Fruit bearing comes from abiding in the word of God as it transforms our life. And then we must obey his word, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Included in the idea of, of abiding is, in the word is, is obedience to that word. 
And, and, and by the way, allowing the word to abide in us leads to the idea of obedience to the word. That's what it's meant to do. We demonstrate our love for the Lord by obeying what he said. Remember back in John 8, 31? Jesus said, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, and he's, and he's telling them the truth here. They hadn't really believed him. They, they'd pretended to believe him. And he says to them, wait a minute, I'll show you if you believe in me or not. He says, if you continue, that's the word abide again. If you abide in my word, same word, then you are truly disciples of mine. That's how you can tell a true disciple. Are you staying in the word of God? Do you want to hear it preached? Do you want to enjoy it? Do you want to, do you want to uh, love it? Do you want to obey it? John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my what? My commandments. You'll keep my commandments. So as we obey the word of God, we show that we love Jesus. By the way, I think most of our disobedience, I was thinking about, someone asked me a question this week about something, and it occurred to me that most of our disobedience is probably because we have a lack of love for the Lord. If we loved him, we would keep his commandments. And so, and note also here in John 15 that Jesus himself is the pattern. He says here uh, in verse 10, I, uh, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, I've, I've kept my Father's commandments perfectly. Now you do the same. Now we're never going to be perfect at that. But Jesus is our pattern. We should follow the pattern laid down. There's more here, obviously. But let me wrap this up today. How do we bear fruit? In two ways. First of all, we allow the Father to prune us with the sharp cutting knife of his word. And as he does so, we're convicted. We respond to that truth. We, we ask God to help us to live that truth. Secondly, we, by abiding in the vine. How do we do that? Number one, by persevering, which shows that we really do belong to him. Those that fall away never really belong to him. Those that don't care about Christ, those that don't care about his word, those that don't care about how they live at all, they don't really belong to Christ. Number two, by focusing on our, our relationship with him. It should be our desire to grow in a stronger relationship with Christ every day. This is what it's all about. The Christian life is all about one thing, Relationship with Christ. And, he, and through him, fruit is born. Number three, we abide by taking our responsibility of abiding seriously. We're commanded to abide in the vine. So that should become our top priority. Number four, we abide by being totally dependent upon him. We will never accomplish anything of spiritual good at all unless we're abiding in Christ. Everything else is a waste. And number five, the fifth element of abiding is by taking in the scripture by letting the word of God, the word of Christ, dwell richly in us. Now, if we cooperate with the Lord in these things, if we, if we do what he says, if we follow his word here, if we're abiding the vine, we're not only going to bear fruit for him, but by his grace and by his power and by his life that flows through us, we're going to be enabled by the grace of God to bear much fruit for him. And I think that is what all of us, here who know the Lord desire, isn't it? We all desire, desire to bear much fruit. And we will realize the truth of John 15, 8. Look at John 15, 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Bearing fruit glorifies the Father, and that is always the objective for the Christian. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful again for your word. We pray that you will help us today, Lord, as we, as we think about these things, Lord, we, we've failed so often. We don't want to continue to fail, Lord, like that. We want to live for you. We want to love you. We want to abide in the vine. We pray you enable us by your grace to do that. Uh, Lord, help us to take this, this seriously. Help, uh, we just pray it won't be a, a thing that is uh, something that we do for a routine, but that we'll have a true relationship with you, that we'll truly love you from the heart.
truly obey you, Lord. We pray that you'll bear fruit through our lives, that God will be glorified. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.